Right now, the Velta Espana is in full swing, and GCN Plus has every single 3,280 kilometers of the race live, and it's ad-free. It's got unmissable on-demand highlights and full-stage replays. With GCN Plus, you'll get unrivaled analysis before and after every stage, from the likes of Bradley Wiggins, Sean Kelly, Alberto Contador, Adam Blyde, and more. But it doesn't stop there. There's plenty more to come this road season on GCN Plus. There's the World Championships, the closing monument in Lombardia, the Autumn Classic, Paris Tours, the list goes on. It's year-round coverage of pretty much every cycling race on the planet, from road to track to cyclocross. And if you do find a break in the schedule, you can discover even more incredible stories with GCN Plus's huge collection of original cycling films, including exclusive Vuelta a España content. All our UK listeners can currently get 25% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. All you have to do is head over to gcn.eu slash cyclist25. That's gcn.eu slash cyclist25. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. James Spender, my honourable co-host, is on sabbatical this week. But fear not, he will return for the next episode. Me, I'm like Macaulay Culkin sitting here in the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I've been left alone and I've been left unsupervised. I'm just kind of hoping Harry and Marv don't force entry. Since I'm alone and unsupervised, I wanted to take a moment and talk about my motivation for being involved in the Cyclist Magazine podcast and podcasting in general. We're in this strange era of TikTok, short form content, Instagram reels. Everything has to be 10 seconds, 20 seconds long. But there's so much merit in long-form storytelling. It's really important. And this is why I love Cyclist Magazine. And as an extension, podcasting, it allows us to tell stories and it affords us as much time as we need to tell that story. Like long before Instagram, Facebook, this technological era we find ourselves in, there was a different way of having conversations. There was a different way of having stories. And I haven't talked too much on this podcast about my background. So I came through law school and for my professional qualification in Dublin, Ireland, I attended a place called King's Inn. And as a part of our training in King's Inn, we used to have to dine with the judges. And the motivation for dining with the judges was to be educated informally around the dinner table in long form conversations, because this is how barristers used to be educated. And I just fell in love with this idea of long form conversations. So podcasting is just a medium that I've been drawn to exploring and just understanding the depths and restrictions within that medium. And I absolutely love it so far. So my goal for you with this podcast, this Fane Tuft episode and podcast moving forward and my own podcast, the Roadman Cycling Podcast, it's to entertain you, yes, but my motivation goes a little beyond that. You see, the flow of information, it's, it's kind of ring-fenced for health and fitness. And by that, I mean, at the very top, we have professional athletes and they have access to health information, fitness information, dietary techniques a long, long time before anyone else. But after they have the information, it seems to trickle down. Next, it goes to celebrities like Hollywood elite. Then it goes to the ultra high net worth individuals. Sometimes it can take decades before we have, you know, a critical mass of the population understanding this stuff. So podcasting affords us a great opportunity to democratize this. It allows me to pull back the curtain and to shine a light on what the very best athletes in the world are doing. What health tricks have they got for optimizing their health? How do they optimize their sleep? How do they always seem to have motivation? So it's my hope is that, yes, you can maybe pick up some tips to go faster on the bike with this podcast, 
or maybe you can learn how to improve your health a little bit or maybe you can just pick up some tips and strategies to move through this world a little bit more deliberately and a little bit more mindfully either way i think it's going to be a worthwhile pursuit with all those caveats being said, I think you're going to absolutely love today's guest. Today's guest is Svein Tuft. He's a multiple Canadian national champion. He is a former World Tour rider. He's a former Maglia Rosa wearer in the Giro d'Italia. And he eloquently recounts the day where he took that jersey to Maglia Rosa in Belfast in the 2014 Giro d'Italia. Svein was somebody who came to my attention in sort of a strange way because I was based out of Toronto at the time and I had heard urban myths of this Canadian rider who was towing a trailer with a dog across the country, like vast distances, and he was getting to races and he was getting to races like 2.2 UCI races like the Tour of Boats. But he wasn't just going there and taking part, he was winning the bike races. And then he was loading up the trailer with his dog and he was cycling home. He was this sort of intrepid mountain man. And as stories grow arms and legs, this story grew arms and legs. And I'm sure most of it wasn't real. But some parts were real. He was carrying this trailer with a dog. He was camping wild and he was winning these bike races. And I was just drawn to the magic of this sort of nomadic lifestyle, this mystery mountain man. And so when I got the chance to talk to his I absolutely jumped at it. So I think you're going to absolutely love this chat because it's an intriguing insight into one of the most interesting people professional cycling has churned out in the last decade. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mr. Svensoft. Svensoft, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thanks, bud. Thanks for having me. Svein, any excuse to chat to you? I've chatted on my podcast, on the Roadman Cycling Podcast. I've chatted on your podcast, which is amazing, with Ryan Anderson. So I thought, you know what, let's complete the hat-trick. Why not chat here too? Nice one. Yeah, always good. Always good. How is life? Well, yeah, it's been uh, yeah, been interesting, you know, ever since uh, retiring from, from cycling and all that. It's, it's uh, man, you just learning all kinds of new things and seeing life in a totally different light and making a lot of adjustments from that crazy world of professional cycling. Do you miss it? I'd say I miss the lifestyle. I miss kind of what it provided for, for my family in the sense of, you know, while the work was very intense and, and consuming, you know, you had when the time was off, it was off. Yeah. And that allowed like a lot of great, because, you know, for me, I still loved cycling and exploring. So even in my time off, it was like, now I had real time to go and do all the shit that I really, really love. So yeah, I missed that aspect because there was a lot of freedom in that. Um, And now with kids and, and, you know, setting up, uh, we're setting up a business here on our, on our property. Uh, We have a cabin that we're we're building up for the amazing for the future. Yeah, we we live in this really cool valley with the rail trail running right through the back of the property with the Salmo River right there, and the Kootenays where this part of BC we're in is just incredible for for riding. And so yeah, the goal is down the road to have people come from all over, take them out riding this area. Oh, sign me up! I'm there. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. When are you kicking it off? Uh, it should be done by this spring. It's um, amazing. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a process, but yeah, all those things they they're very time consuming compared to I. I always laugh about that that life I lived before in professional cycling. It just seemed like, okay, yeah, you went and did your riding, 
in the day, you know, sometimes four hours, sometimes six hours, maybe epic eight hours. But, you know, when you came home, you just had nothing, nothing to do, you know? And that was part of it. And, you know, I'm struggling with that balance as well with my own training at the moment because I'm back and I'm definitely going to pick your brain about some of the stuff I'm doing because I'm starting to redefine what cycling means to me because for a long time I was on that path kind of chasing contracts and trying to make, you know, where you were. But at some point I fell off that ladder and I said, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to make it there. But for me at that point, I almost turned my back on cycling. But cycling so much more than this gradual climb towards the world tour it's so multidisciplinary and it's honestly the reason any of us got into cycling to start it wasn't to chase contracts it wasn't for fame it wasn't for money it was for fun it was for freedom it was for escape it was for stress release and so i'm i was missing that for a long time and i think it's taken me there's a great kind of buddhist saying that a man never walks in the same river twice because it's never the same man and it's never the same river yep i feel like that's me the second time out with cycling now just a totally different relationship with it yeah and it has to be because the the other way is just not sustainable i mean it's it's great when you're young and you're pushing and you're trying to find the ceiling of your abilities in that world and i I'd say to anyone who's going down that path as a younger person, 100%, go after it. Go go all in and, and see what happens. But just like Anthony said, it's like World Tour isn't the final destination, you know? Like it's not for everyone. If you look at just the numbers game, <laughs> it's not a reality for most. So there has to be something there, there that really, you know, fires you up and gets you excited. And for me my relationship had to change because what I was doing wasn't sustainable anymore. My, you know, my body and my, my mind and also just my personal life wouldn't be able to handle what I was doing. And so now it's like, I want to still be able to do those big days and go out and smash it, be up in the mountains. So you need a certain level of fitness. You do enough to maintain that. I find I just cherish those days when I get them way more now. Like yesterday, I was up in the high alpine here, up in like twenty five hundred meters, and we <laughs> did this. We did this descent off this mountain, and it was seriously. I reckon it's like a sixteen hundred meter descent, all single track. Oh, that's brilliant! You come from the high alpine, you're traversing across these like big exposed, uh, you know, just massive shale runs, and oh, it was just incredible and that's the stuff that uh still i get so excited about i was giddy like a kid when we started out that that morning you know like every time i chat to you i'm almost energized by talking to you like i want to go explore i want to go and (laughs) find new adventures and i've been kind of on this kick for the last you know few months i said you know my level of fitness wasn't where i wanted it to be so i was like okay i'm gonna double down on fitness get me back to a place where I can have these big epic days without it just being a slog all day long. So I went and rode the rift in Iceland last month. And oh, oh nice. Man, what, what an experience. You're going across glaciers, like surfing around the edge of volcanoes. And it's just such a fantastic way to spend the day. So kicking off that now, I've signed up for Badlands over in Spain, which is like oh yeah, yeah. 750 kilometer self-supported. So I've no idea what to expect on this. I haven't, I've gone bikepacking before, but I've never gone bikepacking in the sense that I'm going to be so far away that I won't have access to food or water because deserts aren't exactly famed for having <laughs> large supplies of drinking water. So it's like, what do you even need to bring on a trip like this? Like 
I'm assuming bivy, not tent. Yeah. So this opens up a whole can of worms, and like the, <laughs> the people that I know that are really into this stuff, like I'm, I'm into it to a certain level, like where I have my basic setup. Now I know I'm not going to go do those kinds of races, and 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 that I go and I enjoy. So I have, it's totally different when you're going like to enjoy it and kind of take your time and go and explore compared to what you're doing where you're going to actually you know whether it's a race or not you're 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 lining up at a start line in some pretty solid terrain right like it's mountainous down there it's some high altitude it's dry like you said desert style riding and you're trying to go lightweight just to save energy right because yeah. there's just there's so much stuff out there and like i said the setup that you would use compared to something that you would use in BC when there's like a lot more, I mean, you could just go down the list of things that are different. So yeah, lightweight stuff, I would just say like super lightweight bags, um, bivy, but I would, I would tend to say like practice sleeping in a bivy bag to see if it's really worth it because there are some amazing tents out there. Like big Agnes makes these, uh, single man bike packing tents that are like seriously almost as light as a bivy. This is what I use. Yet you're in a tent, so the fabric's not on your face. You're not sweating. Like Yeah. I mean, bivy bags, they don't breathe as much as they claim. And things can get pretty uncomfortable in there. So <laughs> I mean my my advice really is like read up, kind of figure out like the context of what you actually need for your trip to actually survive and then go and test it. And then you'll have a good understanding of like, how is this going to like hold up in the real world? Because it's, you know, you're dealing with sleep uh, deprivation on these types of events, dehydration, and then just big days. And and that's another thing, you know, I, I, I've dabbled in those, <laughs> well, just really one event. And, and the training or the practice that I did prior to that, I would I started doing like some really long days. And you know, as like as a racer, you know, we've we've done some long days, you know, on the bike, but nothing like when you start doing 18, 20 hours straight on a yeah, bike. That's, that's it's a whole other world. And I have the utmost respect for those people. I like it. I my fear is that I'd get too carried away in that world. And <laughs> I don't need to go and like chase another 20 years of being a madman out on the bike. Like now I just want to enjoy it, you know? So yeah, but I'd say like, it's a beautiful world. Like if, if you're into that and you have the time and the, and the resources to go after it, hundred percent go after it. It's, it's awesome. When you talk about your passion for all things off-road and adventure, I often wonder, like your background, you didn't come into the sport, the traditional route. We see riders come in where you go into the juniors, progress into promising U23, although we are starting to see that getting skipped a little bit now, and then into the world tour. Like you came in a very non-traditional route. Like I wonder if you had to come through that, you know, established pipeline, A, would you have made it through without cracking? And B, would you still have that same love of adventure? I think one of those things that have to crack. Oh, I always say like if if I had to go the route most of my friends did, there's no way I'd be I would have made it past the junior ranks. I hated I hated rules and and like kind of being told what to do. And it was only because later on in life I was mature enough to understand that if I can do this part well, 
it provides so much other freedom in the rest of my life to do the stuff that I really love to do. But I wasn't mature enough as a younger man to, to have that long-term uh, understanding. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would have never made it. But also, I think that kind of regimented life, just like you said, of training and being specific and all of these things, I, I, got, I would have missed that really important part of my life where I had total freedom when I was riding up to Alaska with the dog and going down through, you know, North America, Mexico. Because they were the stories I heard first when I started. I, I think we've chatted about this before, but I think you benefited so much from social media not really being developed then, you know, because oh. you developed this aura of this kind of, mysterious wilderness man who tows his trailer around to events but it's not like you were just towing your trailer to these events and you know riding and doing a gravel event or a fondo like you were towing your trailer to like the tour of boats and then crushing the tour of boats and then riding to the next race <laughs> well like like always those stories get embellished and um yeah you know when it started for me it was just it was just traveling. I, n I had no, no concept of bike racing or any any desire of becoming a bike racer. Didn't even know really what it was other than I saw the Tour de France on TV, thought it was kind of weird. <laughs> and that's really the extent of, of my knowledge at that point. So I had no idea where I was headed. But like you touched on, um, I don't think, again, it would have been possible for me to enjoy it in the same way with social media, with a uh, smartphone in hand. It's just too much. And at that time, I really needed, like I was struggling to figure out who the hell I was. And I don't think any of those things would have helped me. So I've, I feel very lucky to have had that moment in time in life of absolute freedom. Because when I think back now of what was going on in my head, there's just no way I, I can't get back to that point. The, the the person I am now, I just like, I've I've seen and experienced too much to have that simple freedom that I had. I mean, really, I was a simpleton, man. Like I would like ride until I was tired, go find a sweet little spot down by the river, read a book, eat, you know, the most basic food because I had no money. And that was kind of how my days looked. And it was, it was awesome. I owned nothing. And yet it was probably the, it was probably the easiest times of my life for sure in, the, in that sense. But isn't there a lesson that like people often say to me, like, oh, would you not be tempted to get back into racing and try and, you know, dabble in a couple of pro races? You know, the Tour of Ireland was on here to Russ that I didn't do for the first time in like a decade this year. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I can still remember what I used to do when I'm on the, when I was on the way up. And I've had the experiences in life now that I would never want to go back to being that kid that I was. Like living in France, having no warm water, like going yeah. out and doing seven hour <laughs> training rides and coming home and having a cold shower, no food in the fridge, like scraping together the money to buy like a McDonald's cheeseburger after doing a 200 <laughs> kilometer race. I'm like, I don't want to be that kid anymore. And I still have to race against that kid. Yeah, yeah, that hungry kid who's like, fully immersed it's everything in his life at that moment whereas you you like you said you've seen all of these different things and you have you're coming at it from a whole other angle and i i think back to that earlier life for myself and it's it's the same thing man i i couldn't it's not you can do anything but would i enjoy it the same way like i was just head down driven loving what i was doing and i wouldn't be able to approach it the same way in the same circumstances 
how deliberate was your sort of ascension into the world tour? Or was it just a case of you were so talented, you kept getting funneled? I'm thinking of an analogy for me. I went through school and I was quite academic in school. So everybody at the end of school is like, well, you got to go and get a degree. And then at the end mm. of my degree, I'd done quite well. And everybody's like, oh, well, you got to go to law school. Like it wasn't like at the end of my degree where I performed quite well. There was nobody grabbing me aside and saying, hey, you know what? You'd be great like a uh, painter decorator. You'd be great at working with your hands. You no, know, it was like, no, okay, now you've gone this far. Your only choices are medicine or law. And I never actually wanted to be a lawyer, but I just kept listening to other people who funneled me in a certain direction. And then I got to the destination and I've explained it before as like, I felt like I spent a decade climbing a ladder and then got to the top of the ladder and realized the ladder was against the wrong wall. And I was like, oh, what did I climb that wall for? (laughs) Did you have any of that same funneling experience or was it something you purposefully moved towards? Yeah, so that's that's a great example and a great point of life and i think a lot of people kind of fall under that umbrella of just you know you are just getting funneled into this thing and a lot of times you're just listening to other people around you who have experience and you think they know or have your best interests in mind but uh, in my case once i caught the bug i don't think i was talented i just i had those those bunch of years touring with a bloody trailer and a dog. <laughs> and then this weird mentality of like always trying to push myself, always trying to like be a bit faster. Even, even then, like, you know, I sh- you would think I was just out there gallivanting, touring around, but like it was still important to me to like to push all day and like kind of because that was the beauty of being so fresh to cycling is that I could see the progression all the time. Yeah. And I think that's the exciting part, like, and what we're always trying to grasp, right? Like, is that, that you know, when you're so raw, <laughs> you progress so quickly. And that was the part that really started grabbing me. And when I started racing, it, at that point, I, I just decided, like, ah, oh, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Like, I, I had absolutely zero idea of the world that I was heading into. But I was convinced that I was going to be able to do it. And there was just no doubt in my mind. Like I think back to it was just absolutely, you know, idiotic stubbornness (laughs) that kind of powered me through those times. And then people all around me, they saw that. And and just like you, they're telling me like, oh, yeah, you got to, you know, they were guiding me in those directions to get on to the next team, get into America and race at this level and get to this race and and so on. But like you, there was a point where I thought that that's what I wanted to be doing. And when I got to a certain level um, in North America, I'd I'd been racing for an American team. I was kind of looking at the rest of the template of the sport in Europe, like where the next progression was to go. And in those years, if you can remember, like 2001, 2002, it wasn't the best kind of reports coming from Europe, you know, it was just always some sort of doping scandal, some sort of bullshit going on. And I was always like questioning, it's like, is this really what I want to do? You know? And that was the year I quit after 2003, I was on Prime Alliance and we, it was a great team, great experience, but I was also pretty blown from, a, I came from a very simple life. And now, as you know, like in America, you're living in hotels, driving in a van, going from crazy place to crazy place. And it's a bit too much. It's not, for me, I like that connection to nature. I like to always, 
I don't know, just have like I'm an introvert by nature. So like I'm not charging around tons of people all the time. And so I needed those mo- and I wasn't getting those those moments. And that was a real struggle for me. And so I stopped for pretty much a year because like like you said, I just felt like that was not for me. And then, yeah, I won't go on, you know, because it's a, a super long story about like how I came back. But, you know, I, it, you're exactly right. Like I was, you just kind of get pigeonholed into like, this is what you are. This is who you are. And I I think really the exploration and the, the adventure side of things has always been more what I loved and cycling professionally and racing allowed me to do that stuff a lot. <laughs> well, like there's great EQ with you understanding at a young age that nature charges your soul and a confidence as well for such a young guy trying to make your way in the sport to say, no, I'm pressing pause on this current track that I'm on and I'm going back to something that's more authentic than to me than this current uh, track. So for you to walk away, that's ultimately what allows you to come back and build a career, you know, part two, which goes on to, you know, some of the crazy successes we all know you're famed for topping it off wearing Maglia Roses. But I don't think that's possible without that year out. Yeah, uh, 100%. I, I needed that. And and what it allowed me to do without going into all the details, but I I came to a point where I was like, I can't come back to this sport when I'm 40, 45. This is the time now. And so how are you going to approach it? And like really some soul searching in the sense of like, how am I going to approach this thing that has a lot of negatives to it, right? That things that don't really actually fit what I love, but the majority I love. So how are you going to focus on it? And and so for me, it was just about a shift in my mentality and and in some ways kind of changing who I was around because those people were also focusing a lot on the negative aspects of the sport. And while those things are always there, they're also on every facet of life, whether you're working an office job or people are always cutting corners. They're, they're, you know, doing crazy stuff to get ahead and that's just part of it. And so you have to accept that and go like, well, how am I going to play in that world? I'm going to do what I'm capable of the best that I can and be proud of that. And you know what, if it's just like you ride as a domestique and whatever, and you still have a great life, man, (laughs) I know, like I've worked all kinds of shit jobs before I before I race bikes, and that's where I was lucky to have that perspective of of how lucky we were to be able to do that job. And oh, what a job! What yeah, a job! Yeah, I mean, when your day is like, oh, okay, what awesome loop am I gonna ride in three different countries? You know, I'm just thinking back to living in Andorra. You know, you go up over a big pass in Andorra, drop down into France, and then you. You know, these do these beautiful roads of the southern France and the foothills of the Pyrenees, climb back over up into Spain, and you you come home and it's just like sometimes you think you're in a la la land, you know. So yeah, that was what I loved. <laughs> but isn't that contrast amazing that when you've had shit jobs, like I've had real shit jobs as well, like construction in Ireland all the way through the winter, trying to pay college loans and stuff, yeah. and you know finishing college and going straight onto the building sites, literally just filling skips up with bricks in the rain all day, like eight yeah. hours. And I remember I was on a podcast a couple of months back and someone said to me, oh, you know, you're putting out a podcast every day. That's real hard work. And I just had to like, <laughs> like, that's not hard work. Like I've yeah. had a hard job, so this is not a hard job. But totally. uh, 
there's something about and we've spoke about this before and i've kind of expanded and experimented a little bit more with it i don't just think that hard uh hard pursuits hard challenges i don't think they're optional nice things in life that give us good stories to tell with our buddies i think they're actually essential ingredients to living a fulfilled life like if i want to watch a netflix series in the evening with my girlfriend and sit down on the couch that's a totally different experience if i'm on a laptop all day doing zoom calls and then i watch the netflix show versus if i'm in the mountains all day i'm coming through lakes i come home i'm worn out but i'm energized in a different way and then i watch that show totally two totally different experiences (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that's such a great point a big and i don't know maybe you're the same way but i know for myself none of that shit's satisfying unless i've pushed myself in some way during the day so if i have a day like where like you said if i'm stuck in front of a computer or like or i'm just like really blown out from a big period of pushing it too hard or whatever I don't get the same satisfaction out of life for those those simple pleasures, you know, like good food and and relaxing and all that stuff. It's not worth anything to me unless I've actually felt like I deserve it in some way, you know? Right now, the Velta Espana is in full swing and GCN Plus has every single 3,280 kilometers of the race live and it's ad-free. It's got unmissable on-demand highlights and full stage replays. With GCM Plus, you'll get unrivaled analysis before and after every stage from the likes of Bradley Wiggins, Sean Kelly, Alberto Contador, Adam Blyde, and more. But it doesn't stop there. There's plenty more to come this road season on GCM Plus. There's the World Championships, the Closing Monument in Lombardia, the Autumn Classic Paris Tours. The list goes on. It's year-round coverage of pretty much every cycling race on the planet, from road to track to cyclocross. And if you do find a break in the schedule, you can discover even more incredible stories with GCM Plus's huge collection of original cycling films, including exclusive Vuelta a España content. All our UK listeners can currently get 25% off an annual GCM Plus subscription. All you have to do is head over to gcn.eu slash cyclist25. That's gcn.eu slash cyclist25. So when you are looking at the World Tour now, you're looking at guys like Jonas Vindegaard, uh, Pogaccia, Remco. Do you think your lifestyle and the type of rider you are and your you know deep connection to nature and stuff that's a, a little bit adventurous, do you think that would sit or that would fit into the current World Tour? Because from the outside looking in, it looks like it's just getting more and more and more regimented every year. Yeah, 100%. I think that I was very lucky to ride in the era that I did. Um, when I came over to Europe, the biological passport had just been implemented. I think things changed. I don't think that, it, you know, the same people that are still going to do stuff, I still think that happens. I still think everyone moves on to the next thing. But I think there was a good period there. Things have shifted now and the young guys, and I, I think COVID really changed a lot of the nature of racing. I was explaining it to a friend just the other day, like what has changed. And this is just my opinion. This is my theory. But in that period, people saw how volatile and easy it was to lose a contract. Teams were saying like either some teams weren't paying people during that time. So guys really got desperate. 
And then when people were able to race, because it was very up in the air, you had guys who were training all the time, trying to be ready. Guys were either cracked over it, or they were training the house down all the time in this stressful situation to try and show their best at the next race. And then you had young guys who were coming up in that time, who were feeling that stress in the races. And then that nature of the racing was just like attack, attack, attack all day long. There's no respite. It's just every man for himself, every man trying to get a, a result. And now you have some of the best guys that are the young guys. They've kind of come up through that era. Yeah. And I don't think they see like, and I'm not saying like, look, the way cycling was before, that was just, that was kind of the tradition, you know, like the break would go, be kind of controlled. Not always, but in, in a lot of these races, that doesn't happen anymore, right? And you know, back in those days, they still raced hard and it was still a lot of times the same outcome. And I think <laughs> what's happened now is racing is more exciting, but it's, I, I feel like for the guys, it's just a lot more stressful. And I'm thinking that maybe the young guys can just handle it more because that's just the, the, how it is with youth, right? You, and especially when you don't know different. So I think the guys who struggle are the guys who have lived in the era before and then are now having to readapt at like in their 30s and they're just going like, ah, oh, fuck this. Yeah. I, I can't do this, you know? <laughs> and so I, I just feel like, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a real shift. And everyone I've spoken to, my friends who are currently racing, I know it's, it's kind of the thing where you always think you're in the hardest moment uh, or that like what you're doing is the hardest. But I do think these guys are experiencing some of the you know, the hardest that human physiology is providing right now in, in the current bike racing scene. Because it's even the traditional sort of customs we had within the sports, like we would have seen Freon, Bradley Wiggins, all the way back to the Armstrong generation, like a respect for traditions, like the a break would go in the tour and everybody's happy with the composition of it. And that would be signaled by the yellow jersey stopping for a piss and then the race shuts down, the break right. gets six, seven minutes. We didn't see Jonas or Pogaccia ever stopping for that piss break in the yellow jersey. And so Too the, risky. The, yeah. The break was taken all day to go. Yeah. Yeah. You, exactly right. Yeah. That's just it. And and even towards like my like my last year racing was 2019. I saw that. I saw that uh happening in every race I did, you know. And and no real respect amongst the riders. It was, like I said, it was every man for himself. You know, the teams would somewhat look after each other, but it was this real battle all, all the time. And I just felt like, oh, it was too much. It was too aggro, too, too, uh, too much animosity uh, amongst, amongst the riders. And, and I, I, I've never been a person that likes to be around people doing desperate things. I just find like nothing good really ever comes <laughs> And and for sure, like you, you see the bad crashes, the pileups that are happening. When I think about your sense of adventure and that freedom that we've talked about in the first half of the podcast, but sort of almost juxtaposed against that at two ends of a spectrum, we have on one end adventure, we have on the far end time trials, and specifically team time trials, the geekiest of all the geeky yeah. events. But yet you somehow managed to like span that spectrum and be world-class isn't too strong of a word at both of these pursuits. How did you, you know, fuel that fire for the time trial stuff? Because it seems to be the antithesis of all of the other stuff. I think what drove me for so many years in cycling was being part of a group 
of friends, brothers, where you're, where you're accomplishing something big together. And when everyone buys in and you see them giving more than you know they're even capable of, that was one of my favorite things to be a part of, whether it was a, a team win in, a, in whatever, in a grand tour or whatever. And that team time trial aspect, I just, I loved it. Because it was, I think it was such a beautiful thing in the sense of you would have these these bigger teams with big names on paper, uh, the the sky at the time, the quick step guys, you know, just some of the best riders on the on the planet. Yet in a team time trial, you could still beat them through like <laughs> through training, through technique, through mentality, through heart, and all of these other aspects, right? Because in a, in a team that has a lot of big names, you have a lot of guys with egos and that destroys as I know you've done some team time trials. They're horrific. When you have those <laughs> yeah, when you have guys like that, it goes very sideways, right? And that was the beauty of it is we had a team of no egos and guys who knew how to get the job done. And it was such a beautiful thing. Like I was just lucky again to be on the team that could allow me to kind of find that out about myself. And and uh, kind of allow me to thrive in that event because it is it is kind of the antithesis of who I am, but uh, for sure I I absolutely love that event. <laughs> and we have the team time trial back for the Vuelta this year. I saw that. Yeah, that's. Uh, do you know how long it is? Actually, yes, Kira. It's twenty three kilometers. I think. Okay. Yeah. Good. That's yeah, a good. So amount. I'm thinking Jumbo Visma. But I, I've a, run a local group ride on a Saturday morning and I had this idea for a long time that group rides were kind of stratified, as you would have experienced in Girona, based on ability. It's like all the good guys ride together, all the shit guys ride together. But the problem with that kind of paradigm is, well, who do the shit guys learn from if they only ever yeah. ride with their shit guys? So we tried to put together a group ride on a Saturday and it's everyone from, you know, pros to literally just bought my first bike two weeks ago how do i figure out these clip-in pedals all in one group and i've been trying to instill into these guys the very same sort of principles that are i think so well uh, embodied in the team time trial like the function of the group ride or the team time trial it's not to showcase the strongest rider it's for the strongest to protect the weakest and for us to operate as this perfect unit, giving shelters to the weak guy, giving motivation to the weak guy, giving food if necessary to the weak guy on a group ride. That's why I just love Team Time Trial. It's just such a romantic event that just beautifully captures the essence and what's great about cycling. 100%. Couldn't agree more. And it's like, it's one of the hardest, <laughs> hardest events you'll do, man. Like horrific. Yeah. I like I've such yeah. getting back into that last position when oh. after you've done your turn. Oh, I still have nightmares about it. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember about that day in Belfast when you took the Maglia Rosa in the Giro d'Italia? Does it feel like an out of body experience, or does it still feel like, hey, that was me? I done that. Oz, yeah, it was total out of body experience, and and it was, I mean. The whole lead up into it, ah, it was, it's just so, yeah, like I, it was an out of body experience in that, in that sense. Like I just, I still can't believe it happened or that that was me or whatever. And the lead up was the team talking about how we're going to win it. And they were just so sure. And I was just like, whoa, 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 you know, <laughs> like, let's not get so far ahead of ourselves here. Like, let's focus on the task at hand. Right. And that was my, that was my whole kind of, the goal was to just not get caught up in, in all that other stuff. And 
And then, yeah, it, of course, rainy day and, and you hear of teams, you know, like crashing and... Dan Martin broke his collarbone that day, I remember. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it just adds a whole... If, if team time trials aren't stressful enough, throwing some friggin' rain, you know, and <laughs> the only thing we're lucky for there in Belfast was that it rained so much that the roads are pretty clean, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, that's, it adds a real element of stress. And we had so much riding because that was kind of our whole zero. Yeah, we had other plans, but we were for sure there with that team to try and win that bloody team time trial. So yeah, it goes down as like, uh, such an incredible memory for me that, um, but it still, yeah, feels like, uh, yeah, a whole other <laughs> experience. Was it just one of those perfect moments in time where training came together with the technology from the background team and execution from you guys on the day, or was there mishaps on the day as well? We, yeah, we had we had a mishap. I mean, there was a climb down the kind of halfway point there through the park. It's not much of a climb, but when you have a bunch of guys who are 80 kilos that are just slaying it a minute at a time at like 600 watts <laughs> you kind of need to like you can't you you have to be careful who pulls on the front there and and uh great teammate of ours peter weaning just a hard bastard um dutch guy and he's just a hell of a climber and he's a he's a handy team time trialist as well but you know we had the discussion beforehand you know if you end up on the front there you got to just think of the big boys just don't <laughs> you know because a guy like him he can just dance up that climb and we'll pipe every single one of us so you know we had that conversation oh yeah 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 no problem no problem and sure enough he's on the front and you know in you're going up that climb it's lined with thousands of people you can't hear anything on the radio and he's feeling that energy he's feeling good right and he's just smashing it up this climb and we're just screaming but <laughs> no one could hear and you know we got through that was the one little mistake of that day but you know ultimately it got us over that climb probably faster than we would have ridden it right so in in some ways you could say that was kind of a crucial moment you know but and it's it's so perfect you have to ride team time trials and get to experience every position in that line and it gives you a real empathy for what someone else is going through because we you know like when you're trying to get back into that last wheel how much that sucks so the last thing you want to do is punch it as if you're the next guy coming through on the front because yeah. you know you've experienced that pain of getting back in at the back and it's not fun totally totally i mean when 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 you're on a bad day in a team time trial it might especially at a big event like that oh it is the worst it's the worst feeling ever you know how fun is it now mentoring? I know it's something you're quite proud of mentoring and giving advice to Canadians trying to make the jump into cycling either as a profession or just something that's kind of an integral part of their life. Yeah, it's it's great, you know, but I it's I find it interesting a, a real recurring theme I'm seeing like with the younger generation is they 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 want things now which I get and understand and they kind of they want to bypass a lot of the the steps which Look, I'm never going to say this. there's, I mean, look at my path to it. It's totally, you know, it's ridiculous how I ended up in the sport. So I never shoot down anyone's ideas. But I do say like at the core of what you're doing, you have to love it so much that none of the other shit matters. So like, okay, yeah, if World Tour is your final thing, you need to focus where you are now and making the most of where you are now. So what I mean by that is like, I speak to younger riders in this area and they're like, I want to get to Europe. How do, 
how do I get to Europe? Do you know any contacts on the team? I'm like, well, that's great. Europe is great. And there's a lot to take there and, and a lot to learn. But you need to be smashing it in your local criteriums. You need to yeah. winning, be winning your local road races by like five minutes before Europe's even going to be not so depressing. <laughs> yeah. Like Belgium is not a fun place, even if you're going well. Exactly. So it's really hard to get that across because no one really wants to hear that. They want they want to get to that next step and that next exciting thing, which I'm totally for. But I, I really believe there's a lot to take from your local area. And they'll say things to me like, well, they're marking me, you know, because they consider themselves the best rider, which fair enough, that does happen. But if you truly have the talent, you're going to find a way to win that bike race and focus on that, being the best of where you are now, and it will happen naturally. So I think back to my earlier years, I didn't, I had no plan. I didn't want to go to Europe. I, and I wasn't really concerned about the next step. I was concerned about the next race and how I was going to smash it. And sometimes it worked out and sometimes I was smashed. But I went out with the the mindset of like, every time I'm going to go and smash myself. And I don't care if if I blow up or whatever, if I look like an idiot, you know, like that's <laughs> fine. I, you have to just go out there and do it, you know, and that's the hard thing to kind of get across. So while I love it, I, it does frustrate me a bit because I think also the the next generation has a bit of a different mentality, right? And I'm, I'm maybe a little more old school because I, I was raised old school. <laughs> but there's a strange cultural shift going on and I'm noticing a weird trends. And especially last time I went back to Girona, there's almost a... Uh, instagram type cyclists around at the moment they want to look cool and all the matchy matchy kiss they want to have the nice bike and take the social media photos they want to brag about how many miles they're doing but they don't necessarily do the basic hard work stuff that you know you need to do mike barry would have called it le metier the hard work you need to do to just be a cyclist yeah yeah there's definitely uh i mean yeah, Drona just blew up in in popularity, and and why not? I mean, it's a beautiful place for riding, and yeah, just a fantastic uh, part of the world. So I get why everyone wants to flock there. And I, like you, I did notice that a lot. Um, and for me, it's just all the context. Like, what are you what are you trying to accomplish? If if it's just the lifestyle of riding, well, that's fantastic. As long as it's sustainable for you, and and. Uh, you know, you have the resources and means to to go and do that. And for a lot of people, social media, that is the the world for them, right? It's it's kind of a weird existence in the sense of you're doing things in order to capture an image and a thing of the day. It's like work for them, which hey, if that pays you, like I'm I'm happy with people finding all kinds of ways to to figure out it doesn't have to be world tour. I mean you know, you and I, that's the world we know and really respect is like working your way in the hard ranks and doing all these crazy races. And that's just another world. But the younger generation are looking at it differently, you know, gravel riding, and racing and Instagram uh, influencers and all that kind of stuff. Hey, if you find a way to get paid for it, I say hats off. I'm I'm just not that good at that stuff. So I had to do the dummy way and just pound, pound away, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you what you are good at. You're a good podcaster. It's one of the ones uh, I love tuning into. You and Ryan Anderson just kind of 
chilled out vibes talking about bike packing <laughs> any uh, big upcoming episodes with ryan uh we've kind of been on a summer hiatus i've been i've been super busy and we've had we've had a few trips and so we've been meaning to do like a bit of a summer recap and talk about some of our our last trips there and yeah kind of get back at it again but for us it's it's really just for fun and uh you know we don't have any real schedule so that might annoy some people but hopefully you know that's <laughs> just how she goes <laughs> Uh, Sven, just to finish up, I'm going to do a little bit of a quick fire round. So I've just thought of this on the spot, but we're going to run with it and see what it's like. Uh, so what's your favorite race? Giro d'Italia. Favorite food? Ooh, sockeye salmon. Favorite book? Oh, that's a good one. Um, a lot of George Orwell stuff lately. Um but the the real life stuff, you know, he writes some great books like 1984, Manor Farm, and this and that. But uh, down and out in Paris and London, and and uh, homage to Catalonia, I think are some real classics. Your favorite training partner? Ah, probably. Uh, I'm gonna say Luke Durbridge. Yeah. Turbo Turbo. Turbo Durbs. <laughs> and then to finish off, something that you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out the journey. Isn't that the beauty of being a dumb young guy though? You just, you got to make those mistakes, you know? I, I, <laughs> I, I wish like what I would probably tell myself, but then it's just those, you know, you, it's hard to, I mean, that's just part of those journeys, but I would have told myself to understand what this sport is in the sense of the lifespan you have in it. And even though I had a long career, I was, I was very lucky. I got to, I lived life to the fullest while I was in it. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to look after the second part of your, your life. Um, and, I, and I guess that advice would be to anyone trying to make it because I was lucky. I had a long career, like I said, and I was, I'm okay after. But the, the transition out of it is a motherfucker for anyone. And I guess I would have just said, you know, f find some other things to be more you know, productive while you're in that world, because the problem with cycling is that you, you, you know, and especially at that level, it's, it's all consuming and sometimes it has to be, but there's a lot of times where you could be more productive. And so I, I, I would have told, had a good sit down with myself and told you to get to your shit together, man. Sven, you mentioned that being out in nature recharges your soul. Definitely talking to you about cycling recharges my love for cycling. So oh, I'm nice. going to go out and get my head kicked in on a local criterium now. But I hope the listeners got that same sense of recharging that I did from listening to you. It's a pleasure as always, Sven. Right on. Thanks, man. Good talking to you. Well, that was Mr. Svein Toft. I absolutely love chatting with Svein. So I hope you got a lot out of that podcast. Svein truly is somebody who just fills my cup. He energizes me. Every time I talk to him, I just have this yearning need for exploration, adventure. It's like he just rewinds that clock for me. And, you know, we often hear that cliche, you are who you spend your time with. But it's also in a remote sense, you are what you consume and you are what you listen to. And for me, listening to Sven Toft, it's such a no-brainer because his passion for adventure, for sport, for athleticism, for doing hard things, it's infectious and I love being around it. I hope you got a lot from today's Cyclist Magazine podcast. I will be back again for the next episode and I'll be joined again 
by James, who sends us apologies this week. Thanks for joining me. Ride safe and chat to you next week. Music.